Dear Heavenly Father, um, it's our privilege, our joy to be here this morning, and that's because we love you and can think of nothing better to do than to praise you, to extol your virtues, to exalt your holy name. Please accept our praise. Please accept our worship. Be blessed by it. Father, as we turn our attention to your word, which is a continuation of our worship, we ask for a special anointing. Holy Spirit, fill our hearts. Give us eyes and ears to see and hear the truth that you have for us this morning. And as we leave this place, may we boldly apply that which we learn from you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys with wives, I need your help this morning to get things rolling. And don't freak out. I'm not going to call on anyone. I'm not going to do anything that would embarrass any one of you. I'm just going to place before you a scenario, and I'm going to ask you which is the most appropriate, the most fitting response, all right? So here's the scenario. Your wife walks into the room having just put on the brand new gown she bought for an upcoming wedding. So do you have the picture? Got the picture, okay. She asks you this question. What do you think? <laughs> you can't run, Gary. You have to answer. The, I'm going to give it to multiple choice. Do you say, that's nice, dear, followed by yawn? Or do you say, wow, honey, that's incredible? A or B? Guys, what do you think? You know, I'm proud of you. First service, there was all kinds of confusion. I said, confusion on this? Come and see me. We need to talk. We need to talk. I think it's really clear which one of those responses is the right one. And I'm just going to say to everyone here, guys, if you don't know, really, if you're a little unclear, please, please do come and talk to me. We need to, we need to have a discussion. Of course, the, the most fitting response to our gorgeous brides, when they ask us what we think as they parade a new outfit in front of us, is, wow, honey, insert your favorite term of endearment there, that is incredible. That is incredible. This is an appropriate and fitting response, first of all, because the alternative response is really stupid. But it's an appropriate and fitting response, secondly, and more importantly, because it's true. Your wife's new gown showcases her beauty, and that truly is incredible. What we're going to discover this morning is we consider a very familiar Bible story, and that's the story of Jacob's ladder, that in the same way that there is an appropriate and fitting response for a man to have towards his wife as she showcases her beauty, there is an appropriate and fitting response for God's people to have toward their Heavenly Father when he showcases his glory. So there's the passage, Genesis 28. Find, uh, find that passage, put your finger in verse 20 or 10. Well, that's where we'll start. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'll make sure you have one. And if you're using one of those Bibles, the page number is 15. Genesis 
Everybody got it? Genesis chapter 28, starting in verse 10. We'll go through the rest of that chapter. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land in which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. And I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. There is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will will give bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. All right. Because Jacob had tricked his father Isaac into blessing him rather than his brother Esau, the one to whom the blessing was supposed to go, Esau very understandably became upset. More accurately, he was livid. He, in fact, wanted to kill Jacob as a result of what he had done to him, Genesis 27, 41. So in order to protect Jacob, Rebekah, that's Jacob's mother, who incidentally helped Jacob deceitfully acquire Isaac's blessing, now helped to devise a plan to get Isaac to send Jacob away from Esau, and she did that by deceit as well. She told Isaac that Jacob needed to go to Haran, where her brother Laban lived, so as to take as his wife one of Laban's daughters, as she just couldn't bear it if Jacob were to marry a Hittite woman as Esau had. Well, Isaac fell for it. And so he sent Jacob to Laban, verse 5 tells us, officially blessing him before he left for Haran. That's verses 3 and 4. Now, on his way to Uncle Laban's, Jacob stopped for the night at a certain place, verse 11 tells us. He found the most comfortable stone that he could. He laid his head down on it, and he went to sleep. And then he had this most incredible dream. He dreamt of a ladder that was set up on the earth, verse 12, 
and then extended all the way to heaven. And on this ladder were angels going up and down between heaven and earth. And on the top of the ladder was none other than the Lord himself, who, after reiterating to Jacob the covenant that he made with Abraham and Isaac, verses 13 and 14, explained to him the meaning of his dream. This is what he said. Look at verse 15 with me. Behold, I am with you and and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. Here God promised Jacob that he would be ever-present with him and that he would continuously watch over and, and guide and protect him. And what a wonderful image God used to make that promise an image that depicts not only the the glory of God and the nearness of God, but also the constant and vibrant activity from earth to heaven, first of all, which probably represents the continuous delivery of the prayers and petitions of the people of God to the throne room of God, and then from heaven back to earth again, probably representing the continuous answering of those prayers along with the constant dispensing of the grace and the mercy and the strength and protection and love of God to his people. God here gave Jacob a visual. He gave him a picture, something he could really connect with and then draw upon as a reminder regarding the glory of God as well as this effervescent sort of buzz of heaven on his behalf regarding the fact that God had promised to continuously watch over and keep him wherever he went and to ultimately give him the land that was promised to him and to his forefathers. And what an encouragement this visual must have been for Jacob. And you know what? Even though God's promise to Jacob here was specific to the Abrahamic covenant, I do think it's legitimate for us to find encouragement from the same vision of the heaven-to-earth ladder as well. And that's because God has also promised to be with and to watch over us continuously. In Jesus' final instructions to his disciples, which we, of course, are, we're not one of the original 12, but nevertheless, we are one of Jesus' disciples, he said this, Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, what we all know is the Great Commission. He said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. Now there's the commission. Here's the power to complete that commission. Jesus says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And we know from the teaching of the New Testament that because Jesus is with us, his grace will be continuously sufficient for us and his power will be constantly made perfect in our weaknesses, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And consequently, Paul tells us in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, we need not be anxious about anything. But in everything, he goes on to say, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, we can let our requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And how awesome is that? Now, I had to ask for an amen in the first service, too. Give me an amen. Amen. Thank you. Turn this into a Southern Baptist church after all. 
I want you to think about this for a minute. I want you to really drink this in. The mighty creator and God of the universe, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, the alpha and the omega has promised to be ever present with us, his people, and to guide us and to watch over us and to sustain us. That, my friends, is a glorious biblical truth. It's it's beyond description, really. It's one that I think should elicit much more from God's people than a, that's nice, followed by a yawn. It's a truth that I think warrants a very deep, significant, and sincere response, a wow, God, that's incredible. You know what? I think Jacob felt the same way. In verses 16 through 22 of Genesis 28, this is the last half of the passage we read together, Jacob, upon recognizing the profound weight of his dreams, meaning reacted or or responded in four distinct ways, which I would like to propose this morning are the four ways that we should react or respond to the reality of God's glory, as well as to his constant nearness to us and to his promise to continually supply us with grace sufficient for our every need. Now, I'm going to give you those four responses, then we'll talk about each one of them, all right? Jacob responded to the glory of God, and I think we should too, first of all, with reverence. Second of all, he responded with commitment. Thirdly, he responded with offering. And fourthly, he responded with witness. Now, I'm kind of an acrostic guy. Um, I really like when uh, the first letter of words spell something going the other direction that's profound, but our cow just doesn't really cut it. So we'll just have to go with the words, all right? All right, let's begin with reverence. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, the first thing he said in view of this incredible, fantastic dream that he had was this in verse 16. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And then verse 17 goes on to say that Jacob was afraid. He was afraid, and he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this, referring to this vision that he received, is the gate of heaven. Upon recognizing the glory of God as well as his constant nearness in this very real and bustling activity of heaven on his behalf, Jacob here expressed a reverential sort of fear of God, meaning a very deep veneration or respect for him. Simply put, Jacob was awestruck by God's glory and by the reality of God's constant presence in and concern for his life. Had he been standing, which I don't think he was because he just had been awakened from his sleep, he probably would have dropped to his knees or maybe even flat on his face. And that's the first response I think we as God's people should have upon recognizing the glory of our awesome God who is always with us, who is constantly watching over and sustaining us. We should be awestruck 
by that reality. But unfortunately, I don't think we are much of the time. And I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching to us. I struggle with this too. Rather than having a referential awe for God, we tend oftentimes to view him as a kind of genie in a bottle who exists to grant our wishes or as merely our friend. Now, God is our friend, and that only because by his grace he's called us to be his friend through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, but he's much, much more than that. And one thing he is not at all is a genie in a bottle. God is not at our beck and call. He is the infinite, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, sovereign, and almighty God of the universe, and we would be wise to never lose sight of that fact. In his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis masterfully propounds the right attitude that the creature should always have of the creator through a conversation that Mr. and Mrs. Beaver have with Susan and Lucy in preparing them to meet with Aslan. Upon hearing that Aslan was a lion, Susan began the conversation by saying this, and I quote now, Oh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Oh, that you will, dearie, said Mrs. Beaver. And make no mistake, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. He's the king, I tell you. God isn't safe, as in comfortably predictable. And he does not exist for our purposes, that is, to give us what I want. But he is good. And he does love us very much. And he has a plan for our lives, a plan that, first of all, serves his purposes, but a plan that is also what is best for us. God deserves our very deep reverence and respect. He deserves our worship and our adoration. He is the one whom we should never take for granted and the one whom we should never disregard or blow off. Rather, he's the one we should always honor with our lives and the one to whom we should always express our deepest, most heartfelt gratitude for all that we are and all that we have. That's the first response that we should have to the glory of God. A second way that Jacob responded to the significance of his dream's meaning was by committing his life to God. Look at verses 20 and 21 with me. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if, and that word if really means since, if or since God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. In other words, and here I'm going to be so bold as to paraphrase paraphrase Jacob, in light of what's become clear to me through my dream, that 
that God is glorious and that he's ever present with me and that he has promised to watch over and provide for me wherever I go than to whomever or to whatever else would I commit myself other than to God. Who or what could possibly compete with him for my devotion? Jacob here came to the conclusion in light of what he saw in this vision of the ladder extending from earth to heaven that God was worthy to receive his total life commitment that there was in comparison no one or nothing else worth committing to. And as we contemplate Jacob's vision as it pertains to our lives, I think that's the conclusion that we should come to as well. That is that nothing and no one can even begin to compare with God. You see, God alone is worthy of receiving our commitment. And when I say that, I'm not referring to our half-hearted, circumstantial, only when it's convenient kind of commitment, which is actually an oxymoron. That's not commitment at all. But rather, our total life commitment. The kind of devotion that reflects a full understanding of and complete buy-in to such scriptures as 2 Corinthians 5.17 where Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And Romans 6.18, having been set free from sin, we have been become slaves to righteousness. Anything less than a total life commitment that sincerely embraces the message of those scriptures and others like them leaves Satan a little bit of wiggle room, gives him a potential foothold. This little story written by Dale Hayes and published in Leadership Magazine makes this point very well. He writes this. On a recent trip to Haiti, I heard a Haitian pastor illustrate to his congregation the need for a total commitment to Christ. He said to them, a certain man wanted to sell his house for $2,000. Another man wanted very badly to buy it, but because he was poor, he couldn't afford the full price. After much bargaining, the owner agreed to sell the house for half the original price with just one stipulation. He would retain ownership of one small nail protruding from just over the door. After several years, the original owner wanted the house back, but the new owner was unwilling to sell. So the first owner went out, found the carcass of a dead dog, and hang it and hung it from a single nail he still owned. Soon the house became unlivable, and the family was forced to sell the house to the owner of the nail. Then that pastor concluded with this very profound thought. He said, if we leave the devil with even one small peg in our life, he will return to hang his rotting garbage on it, making it unfit for Christian habitation. Isn't that powerful? Just think about that for a minute. In view of this incredible reality of God's glory and of his ever nearness to us and his promise to continually strengthen and sustain us, we, in response, should commit nothing less than our entire selves to him. Not only that, we should also commit a part of our resources to him 
as well, which is the third way that Jacob responded to the significance of his dream's meaning. Look at verse 22. He says, and of all that you give me, is Jacob speaking to God, I will give a full tenth to you. Here, Jacob committed himself to tithing. That is to giving a full tenth of what he had to God, because that's what tithing means. It means one-tenth. And here's the interesting thing. He didn't do this in obedience to the old covenant stipulation to tithe, and that's because the old covenant hadn't even been given yet. He did it as Abraham did in Genesis 14, 20, as an unsolicited act of worship, as a very real, very practical way to honor God with his dependence upon him to meet his needs. Think about it for a minute. What demonstrates to God more richly and more genuinely our belief that he is ever-present with us and that he will provide for us and sustain us as he promised in his word to do than this, than faithfully tithing, than freely and joyfully giving back to him that portion of all that we have that he has asked us to in his word? I mean, we can make all sorts of verbal proclamations of our belief in God's desire and his ability to provide for us, but this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where we put our money where our mouths are, quite literally. You see, all that we have, we have because God has graciously given it to us, right? Actually, he's leased it to us. He still owns it all. And he didn't give what he gave us so that we could hoard it, so that we could keep it all for ourselves and therefore become dependent on it. That is the gift. He gave it to us with the idea that we would faithfully give a part of it back to him, I think in part, so that we would always remain dependent on him, the giver, and not on the gift. And as we remain dependent on him for the meeting of our needs, he shows himself faithful to do just that. And not only does he show himself faithful in meeting our needs, even after we give him 10% of our income, he, this is what Paul wrote now in verse 2 Corinthians 9, 8, is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. In other words, as we become even more trusting of and more dependent on God for the meeting of our needs, and therefore even more generous, we give beyond our tithe, as I believe the Macedonian churches did, and beyond their means at that, in giving to the collection for the poor churches in Jerusalem, 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 3, then God's grace absolutely abounds. And he gives even more. Why? So as to meet the generosity of the gracious giver. If we really believe that God is with us always, and that he will sustain us with his sufficient grace, and that he will perfect his power in our weaknesses, then a very real, very practical, very appropriate way for us to respond to him is to honor him with our tithes and our offerings, and thereby with our trust in him. Not in the things he gives us, but in him to meet our needs. All right, the fourth and final way that Jacob responded to the profundity of his dreams, meaning, was by memorializing the place 
where he had this dream. Verses 18 and 19. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head, and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. And that just means house of God. Jacob wanted everyone who would come across that memorial to be reminded of the glory and the nearness and the ever-presence and the faithfulness of God. That's why he put it there. In other words, he was witnessing to others of his experience with God. We should do the same thing. As we come to grips with all that God is, all that he has done, all that he will do for us, we need to share that with others. In fact, we are commissioned to share that with others. We talked about that a few minutes ago. But not only is that our commission to share Christ with others, it should also be our joy. It should be our passion. We have been called into a personal relationship with Almighty God through the sacrificial death of his son, Jesus Christ. Consequently, we've been saved from eternal destruction to eternal life. We have been blessed with an unspeakably wonderful and incomparable gift, and that reality should absolutely burst from us. It should. Jesus said it like this in Matthew 5, 14 through 16. To his disciples, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. But too often the reality of our salvation doesn't burst from us, does it? We don't let our light really shine before others. Rather, we kind of dim it. We kind of cover it up a little bit. We keep our three ways at 40 watts rather than cranking them all the way up to 150 watts. And the question is, why? Same question Josh posed earlier. Why? Why do we muffle this amazing truth rather than shout it from a mountaintop? Well, I can think of three reasons. You might maybe be able to think of more, but here's three I came up with. The first reason that we would muffle as opposed to shout out this truth is because maybe we really don't believe it. I mean, seriously, we really don't believe it. Because our faith experience is one of religion and not one of relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Another way to put it is maybe we aren't really saved. There are people in our churches who are very good, who are very religious, and who know well the spiritual lingo of the day, but they have never put their trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, for the forgiveness of their sins. Their faith is about platitudes and social justice, not about having an eternal relationship with God through his son and about being radically transformed into the image of that son. And those people, as a result, do not have the Holy Spirit living within them, and they will therefore have no compulsion or drive to witness to others of their experiences with God. So that's the first reason that we might hide our light under a bushel. The second reason we might stifle rather than broadcast the truth about Jesus is because we don't really understand it. We haven't really grasped the fullness. We haven't 
caught the enormity of the message of the gospel. So let me take a shot of giving, at giving you the enormity of the gospel, okay? I'll keep it short. Each and every one of you, including me, each and every one of us was destined to spend eternity outside the presence of God, forever and ever in hell as the just penalty for our sin. Notice I said the word just. We deserve that. But purely out of his grace and out of his mercy and not because of anything whatsoever that is worthwhile in us, God, through the sacrificial death of Christ, reached down and plucked those of us who have put our trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation from a terrific and horrific eternal future and placed us instead in this glorious That is huge. It truly is huge. And you know what? Those who really get it, they'll share it. They won't be able to help it, but share it. But others who don't really catch that enormity might not be as interested in sharing that message with others. Third reason. We would hide our light rather than let it brilliantly shine is because we don't want to be rejected by the world. We don't want to be rejected because of our faith. Because we've bought into the lie, quite honestly, that being accepted and embraced by this world and not thought of as some sort of religious nut or religious Jesus freak is what's important and what will make us happy. But the truth of the matter is that our acceptance by and popularity in the world is absolutely 100% meaningless. When it's all been said and done and all the chaff is blown away, it won't make any difference whatsoever what the world thinks of us. Not even an iota of difference. All that will matter is what God thinks of us. And whether or not we hear from him these coveted words, well done, good and faithful servant, Enter into your master's joy. In light of God's glory and his constant closeness to us and to his promise to always care for us, we should respond by witnessing to those around us joyfully, passionately, our incredible experience with our incredible God. The power and the love and the grace and the mercy of God, the glory of God, as showcased first and foremost at the cross of Christ, but also in and through his constant and attentive care and concern for his people is wonderfully amazing. It's indescribable, really. And it's something, as I mentioned before, that should elicit much more from God's people than a, that's nice, God. It's a reality that calls for a very deep and profound response. Wow, God, that's incredible. So by way of takeaway this morning, I think we need to each ask ourselves one simple question, and we need to answer it very, very honestly. And here it is. What is my response 
to the glory of God. What is my response to the mighty and awesome one who is ever-present in my life and who constantly watches over and sustains me? Am I yawning? Or am I amazed? Am I a little bit bored with God? Or am I absolutely amazed by God? Be honest. Be honest with yourself. Do you see God as your genie in the bottle? is merely your friend, to whom you're only partially committed and to whom you give very little, if any, of your resources and about whom you share with others very infrequently, if at all? Or do you see him as the almighty and righteous king who is also your gracious savior to whom you're wholly committed, to whom you give faithfully and generously of your resources and about whose glories you shout from the rooftop? Are you yawning? Or are you amazed? And by the way, if you're yawning, if you're honest with yourself, say, you know, I am a little bored with God, you should probably ask yourself why. Here's a few questions to ask yourself. Is there something I'm missing? Is there something I really don't believe about God or simply haven't grasped about him? Is there perhaps something standing between me and God? Do I really trust him? Am I caught up in worldly things and therefore care more about the world's view of me than God's view of me? Am I yawning? Or am I truly amazed by the glory of God? Let's pray together. Worship team, come on up. Father, I thank you so much for your word and for the challenge to ask ourselves a question. Are we taking you for granted? Do we have expectations that you would, should give us the things that we have? Are we a little bit bored with you? Father, if that's the case, I pray that you would bring to light, bring to mind the glories of who you are. Blow us away. God, we need to be amazed by you because you are amazing. God, open up our hearts. Holy Spirit, help us to see these things clearly so that we can be amazed, that we can respond to you in the right way with reverence and with commitment, with our giving, with our offering, with our witness. We need you to help us to respond appropriately appropriately to your glory, to your goodness, to your faithfulness, to your love. We do love you, Lord, even when we don't show you the right sort of reverence. We don't praise you the way we should. But God, as we read in your scriptures, we see who you are. Help us, help us be more taken in with you, more amazed by you. In Jesus' name, amen.